Hello and welcome to this special episode of the 5Ws podcast. Join me, AJ, as I take a look at Pink Floyd's most successful album, The Dark Side of the Moon, which turned 50 this week. Who? The English rock band Pink Floyd. What? The band's 1973 album, The Dark Side of the Moon. Where? Recorded at EMI's Abbey Road Studios. When? Recorded in sessions in 1972 and 73. Why? The band members were trying to make a philosophical statement about life itself, as well as reflecting on the tough lifestyle and pressures placed upon a rock band in the 1970s. Released at the start of March in 1973, The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd was a powerful indicator of a band that had finally managed to find its musical direction, with a set of classic songs, amazing production and iconic artwork, this album paved the way for the band for the rest of the 1970s and into the 1980s. So where did the musical journey for this band begin? And how did they follow the yellow brick road to this amazing success in 1973? Ha ha. Pink Floyd was an English rock band formed in London in around 1965. They quickly started to gain a following as one of the first British psychedelic groups. This meant trippy music, trippy light shows at their concerts, all that sort of thing. Their early sound was defined by their extended compositions. Songs that go for a very long time sometimes. Sonic experimentation, they were one of the earlier bands to use sound samples and that sort of thing. Philosophical lyrics, no la la la, I love you baby stuff here. And elaborate live shows, as I've previously mentioned. They signed to EMI Records in 1967 and had some modest success with early singles Arnold Lane and See Emily Play. Unfortunately for the band, however, trouble soon appeared on the horizon when their frontman and primary songwriter, Sid Barrett, started to suffer from some sort of problems that ultimately led him to being ousted from the band. Some blame a nervous breakdown of some sort, but it's highly likely that consumption, a uh, large consumption of LSD uh, led to Sid Barrett's collapse. It was really, really unfortunate, but once again, that's a story for another podcast. Dave Gilmore, the guitarist, was recruited as a replacement for Sid and they continued on. The experience the band had with Sid, however, had an impact on pretty much all of their subsequent music. He was always haunting them in some ways. After Gilmore joined the band, the leadership was increasingly taken up by bass player Roger Waters. Waters' songs of darkness, disillusionment, and emotional turmoil sent the band in interesting directions. But this was fortunately tempered by the work of Dave Gilmore and keyboardist Rick Wright. It wasn't always doom and gloom, and if it was, it, it sounded great. It sounded awesome. So the bands released the album More and Amagama in 1969 after the departure of Sid Barrett. Atom Heart Mother in 1970, that had a lot of brass sounds and you know orchestra sounds, and generally the band wasn't too happy with that one. There's some good tracks on it. Metal in 1971, and Obscured by Clouds in 1972. Across these albums, Pink Floyd experimented with a variety of songs and sounds, 
but it was metal in 1971, which proved to be the most influential for the future sound direction of the band with the songs One of These Days and Echoes. One of These Days was essentially an extended guitar solo across the length of the entire song, showcasing Gilmore's amazing guitar talent. I, I really don't need to talk him up. Everybody should know how great he is. But Echoes was a 23-minute concept song, which filled the entire second side of the album with, um, with just amazing sounds, a lot of sampling and great lyrics. Uh, more than any other track, it pointed the direction to the Pink Floyd sound that finally emerged on Dark Side of the Moon. The Dark Side of the Moon was recorded in two sessions in 1972 and 1973 at Abbey Road Studios with engineer Alan Parsons doing much of the production work. Developed during live performances before the actual recording began, which was a fairly normal process for the band back in those days. Imagine a modern band these days showcasing a new album live before they even record it. Wouldn't happen anymore, but anyway. Um, it was conceived as a concept album that would focus on the pressures faced by the band during their arduous touring and recording lifestyle. It also reflected on the mental health problems and emotional collapse of former band member Sid Barrett. The album. As with most good concept albums, the songs tend to blur and meld into each other, with few tracks being isolated from any others on the album, part of course the gap between side one and side two. The opening track is the combined Speak To Me, which serves as a combined thematic introduction to the album, containing elements of many songs that are to follow. It's a very brief track. It's good. It's not really much of a song in all honesty, though. This leads directly, however, into the second track, Breathe. Breathe is just sublime. It's a great proper opening for the album. Beautiful lyrics sung beautifully by Gilmore, with some great guitar work. A slow and soft, proper start to the album. But things from that point, we're going to start to get a bit weird and just continue on. So the third track on the album is On The Run. This is more of a soundscape than an actual coherent song. It highlights a lot of the effects and sample works used on the album with some excellent, excellent percussion work by drummer Nick Mason. Personally, this is one track on the album I'm more likely to skip yeah, I listen to the whole thing, but this is the one that's like, eh, sometimes, yeah, you've got to be in the mood for it. There's nothing wrong with it, but I don't know. It always sounded very stagey. It's a very stagey sort of piece to me, piece of music. It just sounds like something that on stage, yeah, I, I could see the purpose of it on the album. Uh, it's a bit redundant. On the run, crashes into oblivion, appropriately, and we start to hear the ticking clocks. It's time. I've always loved time. It just ticks all the boxes. The production in this song in particular is amazing. The lyrics are great. And in the middle, we, want to get, we get one of Gilmore's greatest guitar solos of all time. It sounds brilliant. Um, it's a slow build, but when it gets started, wow. That's just, ah. Oh. Um, and we also get the bonus of Gilmore and Wright sharing vocal duties on this track and you know, in different parts of the song. That, to me, always sounds amazing. I've got no problems with somebody singing backing vocals, but when you give one one singer a chance to just like contrast with, the, with another, it usually sounds awesome. It's also worth mentioning at this point that when Pink Floyd released the Discovery um, box set uh, a number of years ago, 
they put out an early demo version of this song on it. Okay, sacrilege here. Personally, I prefer the demo version to the original release. It just strips back some of the heavier sounds of the original release version of the song, and it allows the heartbeat sound, sound effect um, of the intro dominate more sections of the piece. It gives it a more organic or sort of a live sound that this song sorely needs. It just, just needs that little bit of extra life in it. Once again, in this version, I think it's more superior. But whatever, you can like either version, I don't care. Um, at the end of time, we get an all too brief reprise of Breathe, which is essentially the conclusion of the song that was cut off by Run. It makes for a beautiful ending for both Breathe and Time. They both blend into each other seamlessly. Sounds great. Time slash Breathe ends. And then we run into the great gig in the sky. This is another amazing piece of music. Some great samples from a Floyd Rohde giving his I'm not, afraid, I'm not frightened of dying speech leads to the amazing vocals by Claire Torrey. The story of how she was essentially led into a recording booth and told just to sing a song, just think of it up on the spot with no words, is legendary. She does an amazing job. It took three takes for her to get it. And this amazing song is the result. And she had to sue the Pink Floyd years later where it was pointed out. It's like, yeah, actually she deserved a songwriting credit on that album, on that song. And that's absolutely correct. Because she, you know, she was forced to make it up herself. So yeah, great work from her. Um, it's, um, it's not my favorite track on the album, but I know for many it, it really is. Um, it's a difficult song to describe. Just, just listen to it. Just listen to it and give it a chance. It's, it's not conventional in any way, shape or form. Okay, side two opens with money. as an active response or echo to time time on side one looking at another common element that we all have to face in life the 7-4 time signature used for most of the song gives it a really funky sound it really stands out from the other tracks they switch over to 4-4 for the guitar solo in the middle probably to retain their own sanity but the 7-4 stuff just sounds amazing but you hardly notice the shift over very creative it is also the first song on the album to feature the saxophone work of Dick Parry. Great stuff. His saxophone work on this was amazing. The classic album series from a number of years ago had a great sequence with Gilmore talking about recording the guitar solo in this track. It's worth checking out if you can find it. And once again, this track leads us directly into the next with no let up at all. Us and Them.
difficult to know where to start with Us and Them. Arguably, it's my favourite song on the album. The lyrics are beautiful and it has that real soft, loud, soft, loud structure that I, I just love songs that do that. Um, a lot of songs in the 90s did. This was one of the earlier songs in the 70s to have a go at that sort of style. This, um, this song really does belong to Rick Wright with his amazing voice and keyboard work. I think it was originally going to feature in the Zabriskie Point soundtrack, but the director of the film decided not to use it. Thank God, it, it really does belong on Dark Side of the Moon. More of Dick Parry's saxophone work here, which sounds amazing. It's the heart of the song. The ultimate theme of this song is war and conflict, and it's rendered in such a beautiful way. It also features the iconic, if you give him a quick, short, sharp shock, roadie sample. <laughs> Great. Um, once again, I'll note that it's worth checking out the early mix version of this song from the Discovery box set. It strips back some of the sound to let us hear Rick Wright's keyboard work more clearly, and Dick Parry's saxophone work sounds breathier, breathier. It just sounds like he's breathing into the saxophone. It sounds amazing. It's definitely superior to the original release version, a great version of the song. Then we move on to any colour you like, referencing the famous Henry Ford quote. Okay, for the longest time, I was unimpressed by this track. Essentially, it's a long instrumental. It sounds a bit jammy, you know, that sort of thing, bit, bit, bit improvised. And you know what? Well, times change, and so do tastes. And I love this track now. I, I listen to it every time. Don't skip it anymore. It sounds great. Just sounds really, really awesome. There's some really, really funky guitar sounds in here as well. So there you go. And it serves as a really effective bridge between us and them and brain damage. So getting towards the end, we get to brain damage and then eclipse. The last two blended pieces that conclude the album. I don't know if Roger Waters knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote the lyrics. And if the banjarin starts playing a different tune, well, I think he was probably referencing Sid but he inadvertently predicts his own future. Lol. <laughs> Brain damage is amazing. Waters' vocals feature very strongly here and it demonstrates the strength of his own vocals for pretty much the first time on the album. He doesn't really get much singing duties apart from these last two tracks. The female backing singers add a huge amount to this song as well. Great stuff. And finally, here we are near the end and we finally mention the dark side of the moon itself. Then we get to Eclipse, the closing track of the album. Like any good concept album, we end with a bang rather than a whimper. It's like poetry set to music, no discernible chorus. It just keeps going up and up and up until we get to the sun, and, but that can be eclipsed by the moon. The last word, a great quote, is left to one of the roadies as we fade out the way we started on a heartbeat. I'll let you listen to that quote yourself, it's awesome. The album was a massive success, spending over 900 weeks, 900 weeks on the Billboard charts in America and selling nearly 50 million copies. I think the great sounds and universal themes of the album 
were the key to its success. The design of the album Sleeve, which features a prism structure, was designed by Storm Thorgenson um, in response to keyboardist Rick Wright's request for a simple and bold design that would represent the band's lighting and the album's themes. And I think this is also a big contributor to the iconic status of the album. It looks stunning and it looks like no, you know, there's been impersonators, but it looks like no other album cover. No, no pictures of the band, just lyrics on the insert and that sort of thing. Very simple, very stripped back, um, very dark, that sort of thing. But the artwork just truly looks amazing. Personally, I think the album holds up amazingly well. It benefited massively from the technological improvements in sound recording and production engineering methods, which was largely pioneered by George Martin and the Beatles in the late 1960s, to the benefit of many musicians and especially Pink Floyd. It has, there's been a lot of remixes and improved versions over the years and higher definition things and all that sort of stuff, but the original vinyl version demonstrates that the album was pretty much perfect at its first release. Legacy for Pink Floyd. Fortunately for Pink Floyd, they had more music glory in their future. The three subsequent follow-up albums, Wish You Were Here in 1975, Animals in 1977, and The Wall in 1979, all continued the concept album ideas that had started with Dark Side. After that for Pink Floyd, well, that's, another, that's a story for another podcast. Legacy for everybody else. The artwork alone has been copied and parodied pretty endlessly for the last 50 years. As for the concept album idea perfected in Dark Side, well, there have been some imitators, but few have been quite as successful. It certainly inspired the next generation of musicians, especially the guitar solo stuff. There were notable cover versions of this album as well. The reggae version, Dub Side of the Moon, by the Easy Star All-Stars is amazing and definitely worth checking out. Taking away the moments that make up a dull day. Flaming Lips and Stardeth and White Dwarfs with Henry Rollins and Peaches doing Dark Side of the Moon is also amazing. Definitely worth checking out. A very different sound and a few very different takes, but it's great. Check it out as well. For me, this album has always been an inspiration as, as one of the few albums I can start listen to from start to finish. I really, really enjoy it. The future? Well, I'm sure this will be remembered just as well in another 50 years' time. Thank you for listening. See you later. Picking away the moments that make up a dull day.
told you when to run You missed the starting line